Uh, Father, we have excitement for where you're taking this ministry and for the things you are uh, working to accomplish through us. We're looking forward to what you have planned, Father. We pray that in all the small details and all of the big considerations that we're in the middle of trying to address, that you would show yourself strong in our weakness and prepare the road ahead. Make these things come to pass in your will and according to your timing. And Father, just solve all of this so that we can enjoy meeting together and worshiping in your name. And in the meantime, Father, we thank you for this venue as well for... Well over a decade now, we thank you, Father, for the chance to meet and to teach. And tonight, especially, Father, in our study of Romans, to reveal yourself in this way through this, this important letter. Father, it's, it's such a gift to the church. answers so many questions. It sets our mind right on our understanding of who you are and who we are and how you've come to us and how we've received such an incredible gift in your Son and in the grace you displayed uh, through him to us. Father, there's, there's no book of the Bible we care to get right more than this one. And so, Father, we ask as we study again tonight that you'd be there to teach us, as you have been, correcting those mistakes I make in the minds and in the hearts of those who hear, bringing us all to a knowledge of yourself, according to your Spirit, who is the only teacher in this room tonight, Father. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What about Israel? That's the question that Paul set out to address in Romans 9 through 11. And last week at the end of chapter 8, Paul had just concluded a compelling argument for our eternal security in Christ. Paul demonstrating that God sets in motion a chain of events that bring us into glory. And as we looked at the end of 8, we noticed that that chain is unbreakable. For God determined that we would receive His mercy before the foundations of the earth. So, what God has determined for our sake before creation cannot be thwarted by anything in creation. And yet, at the same time, Paul recognized that Israel's rejection of their Messiah in his day would seem to argue an opposite conclusion. To the casual observer, it might seem that God had promised Israel a Messiah only to set Israel aside when that promised Messiah finally arrived. For if God, as Paul says, predetermines, predestines his elect to salvation, and nothing can challenge his will, then why didn't he save Israel? Why did God seem to reject his own people, Israel, while permitting Gentiles to enter into his grace? And perhaps even more concerning, what does God's rejection or apparent rejection of his own people in this way, what does that suggest about his trustworthiness? Might God reject us too one day? Can we trust in the promises we've received in Christ? Or will we end up like Israel? Because Paul knew those questions would be on the mind of his readers, particularly on his Jewish readers' minds, if not his Gentiles, I think Paul felt compelled at this point in his discourse to address this particular question of what about Israel. He suspends his discourse on righteousness, and he goes about answering several critical questions in defense of God's faithfulness concerning Israel. He's going to explain why God didn't call his nation into faith when he delivered his Messiah to them as he promised. He's going to explain where God's plan is going for Israel. And then he's going to show how God will remain faithful to his promises to Israel in a day to come. And he organizes his response chronologically, explaining Israel's past, Israel's present, and Israel's future from God's perspective. And those are the three chapters we're now engaged in studying. Chapter 9 reviews Israel's past relationship with God, specifically how they have been given the promises in the first place. Chapter 10 explains Israel's present circumstances during this age in which the church is largely Gentile, and they have rejected the Messiah, and they are not bowing the knee to the gospel. And then chapter 11 reveals God's eventual plans to fulfill those promises to his people. And I'd add, perhaps most important of all, in chapter 11, we're going to understand why it was necessary for God to enact such a seemingly complex plan for his people. Now, last week we ended in Romans 9, verse 13. That's just at the point where Paul had finished explaining to us that it is God's prerogative to decide who will receive his promises. The Lord made promises to Abraham, Paul said, concerning the nation of people called Israel. But God, when he did that, had some very specific people in mind, very specific Israel in view when he issued his promises. His promises, we found out, were intended for only a certain group of descendants of Abraham. Not for everyone who descended from Abraham, but only some would be included in God's grace. And then to prove the point, Paul cited the example of Abraham, 
and again of his son Isaac. And in both men's cases, what did we learn? That God pre-selected one of their children to receive his promise while excluding the other. And God communicated his selection in advance of their births and without regard to the children's behavior or their individual merits or desires. And he did so to make clear that the outcome was entirely according to his will. In short, God simply chose one child and passed over the other. Now, Paul's point is that throughout Israel's history, God alone has determined who would be included in his promises. Not all of those men or women who were born under the patriarchal line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were to be included in God's plan. His grace was being dispensed on the basis not of birthright or of their effort or even of their desire for his favor, but as we read in John 1, only according to God's will. God extends his grace to whom he chooses in advance. And in Israel's case, God chose some of Abraham's descendants to receive his promises and not all. And as I said last week, to be considered part of God's Israel, it was necessary to descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it is not sufficient that you have descended from those three men. So the first lesson we learn concerning Israel's past in chapter 9 is that God never intended to bless all Jews with the promises that he gave to the patriarchs. Only a subgroup of Jews were in view. The Bible calls that subgroup the elect. Those who were selected by God to receive the promises. And God's selectivity among his people is not the exception. It's the rule. And therefore, you shouldn't be surprised to see that pattern repeating when Jesus appeared to them. Some Jews were appointed to receive their Messiah in the day of his arrival, but most were not. And that fact, plain as it may be, raises some difficult questions. And Paul anticipated that you and I would ask those difficult questions, beginning with the question that opens up tonight's teaching, verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, upon hearing Paul explaining that God selects only some to receive his promises, you would immediately wonder, is that Right? I mean, is that just? I mean, we know God is good. We know he's righteous in all that he does. And yet, Paul's explanation just seems to paint God in a very unfavorable light, doesn't it? I mean, isn't his explanation depicting God as cruel or unjust? I mean, isn't a God who only extends his mercy to some, isn't that unfair? Isn't that unkind? Isn't that unloving to pass people over like that? And so as you think that way, as a result of that line of thought, you may be tempted at that point to just reject Paul's teaching out of hand, or maybe you seek for an alternative interpretation, a way to sort of take another look at the text, turn it over a different way, and and somehow we'll come out of this with a different view. Paul knew you're going to feel that way, because it's natural to feel that way, because it's the natural reaction of an untrained spiritual mind to the truth of God's sovereignty. When it comes to deciding justice and mercy, friends, the accused always feels as if they know better than the judge what the proper judgment should be. But, of course, the opposite is actually true. Paul asks the question on our behalf in verse 14 because he intends to put this objection to rest. Paul says emphatically, God is not unjust. Now, I want you to notice before we look at the detail that Paul doesn't retreat from his earlier teaching, not one iota at this point, he simply denies the conclusion that the fact of God's selectivity somehow suggests that he is unjust. He says one ain't equal to the other. God is both selective in the assignment of his mercy and he is just in doing so. Our natural thinking assumes, well, that doesn't make sense because God must owe every human being an opportunity to receive grace, doesn't he? I mean, it's as if we were born with an entitlement to his mercy, right? So we define things like justice and the word love as meaning 
having opportunity to receive God's mercy. But friends, that's not a biblical concept, and you will not find that definition in the Bible. In fact, I would submit to you, it's not even logical. The Bible never claims that love is defined as giving everyone an opportunity for mercy. On the contrary, this is how the Bible defines love. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And then he adds, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. You notice that Jesus says the greatest love is laying your life down for friends, not necessarily for everyone. Furthermore, he defines friends as those who have received from Jesus what the Father gave him to give. Jesus adds these disciples were his friends because he chose them and they didn't choose him. To say that all mankind has some entitlement or right to God's mercy, that is actually contrary to the meaning of the word grace. Grace means receiving something you are not entitled to have. No one has a right to grace. And God is not obligated by some definition of our own concerning fairness or justice to extend salvation to everyone. There's no obligation on God to do that in order for him to be just. The Bible says plainly, God extends mercy to those he chooses. And once again, Paul turns to a prominent example from Israel's past to illustrate this truth at work. And he cites the example first of Moses in Exodus. And brilliantly, Paul chooses to use as his proof God's own words concerning this very topic. This is God speaking for himself, not just in the sense of Scripture, but in the first person. In explaining how he deals with his people, the Lord tells Moses in Exodus 33, I decide who will receive my mercy. To paraphrase, God says he will have mercy and show compassion on those whom he chooses. Now, some people receive God's compassion and some people receive his mercy. And likewise, friends, some people do not. And that outcome is solely God's prerogative. He is not moved to showing us mercy by something within us. He is not moved even in response to something we might say or do. God says he extends his compassion and mercy solely on the basis of his sovereign will and purpose. When a doctor, for example, makes a life or death decision concerning the future of a terminally ill patient, you might hear people commonly say, well, the doctors are playing God with that person's life. In making that comment, what we're acknowledging is that life and death are decisions that are uniquely reserved for God alone. That's why we say they're playing God, as if they could do what God alone could do. Because we know God alone has the power to determine the course of your life. The Bible says you can't add a day to your life. God alone has determined before you were born how long your life would go. And so we acknowledge God is sovereign over our physical life. But then, at the same time, sometimes we try to deny that he has the same privilege concerning our spiritual life. We claim true love must mean that... Mankind has been allowed by God to retain the ultimate control over our own eternal future. But friends, if you're willing to extend God the privilege of his sovereignty in one circumstance, you can't deny him the same thing in the other. If he is God over your physical life and death, then surely he is also God over your spiritual life and death. And that's what God declares concerning himself. Paul summarizes his statement in verse 16, and it's a profoundly important principle. Paul says, it does not depend on a man's willing or working, but on God's choice. Now, the it in that statement obviously refers back to verse 15. And in verse 15, what do you find? God's mercy, God's compassion. That's the topic. So first, Paul says, God's mercy to us does not depend on the man who wills. Your will here is a reference to your desire, to your thought, to your assumptions about God. And friends, we know there are many men and women running around the world right now assuming that they will receive God's mercy merely because they prefer it to be so. Not because they have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, not because they know the truth of God, merely because they don't like the alternative and so they choose to believe the better outcome is theirs. And God says, "My mercy will not be constrained by your assumptions or presumptions. No man or woman wills their way into receiving God's mercy." Paul has already demonstrated earlier in chapter 3 that man's fallen nature never seeks for God. No one has ever sought for God. No, not one. Our will, then, is not a factor in God's decision to extend mercy. 
Secondly, Paul says God's mercy won't depend on the man who runs. Now, running is a euphemism here for doing good works, for trying to earn God's pleasure, to do what's necessary to receive His mercy as a reward. Like someone running a race to receive a prize. But of course, it's no surprise to you that God's mercy can't be earned. Paul showed as much in earlier chapters of Romans, right? God's mercy cannot be chosen. It can't be earned. It only comes when God determines to extend it. Now, if Paul's teaching weren't challenging enough at this point, to some of us certainly, he presses us even harder with a second example from Exodus in verse 17. And this one provides an important corollary to the first example. It's not teaching the same thing. It's teaching a corollary truth. During the confrontation with Pharaoh in Egypt, the Lord reassured Moses that the Pharaoh would be playing a role that God assigned to him. God determined that Pharaoh was going to be his antagonist in this great test of wills. God was ready to redeem his people from Egypt, just as he had promised Abraham 400 years earlier that he was going to do. And God determined that he would perform that redemption only through a great display of his power and might before the nations. That's how this was going to go down. And therefore, God required an adversary who would be leading Egypt and willing to resist God's will only until such time as God was ready for the battle to end. And that man was going to be Pharaoh, whom God told Moses he was raising up, meaning bringing into the world and putting into a position of power, and he says specifically so that he would oppose God and oppose Moses. And God told Moses, I have put him in that place so I can display my power in defeating him. Now, you can see further evidence of God's intentions to do this when you look at the record of the plagues in Egypt. I want you to pay careful attention to this detail. How many plagues were there? Ten. And we know God intended to deliver all ten plagues against Egypt. He had that intention before the first one ever kicked off. How do we know that? Well, because he told Moses that. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, before Moses ever got involved in the confrontation, we hear this. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, you see he's not there yet. When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that you may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now notice, the Lord says that the plagues that he's going to have Moses perform before Pharaoh, those plagues will culminate in the killing of the firstborn of Egypt. And of course, we know that's the tenth plague. That's the one that gives us the Passover observance. It's the plague that pictures the work of Jesus Christ as our sacrificial lamb. We all know this. Now, could you imagine an Exodus story that took place without the tenth plague? Which is why God said to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart at a certain point in this conflict to ensure that all ten of those plagues happen just as I planned. Because God knew there was no man on earth, no matter how stubborn that man might be, he could not withstand God's power and his wrath for that long. I mean, not even Pharaoh could maintain his opposition to God long enough to get through ten plagues. And yet God had predetermined that there was going to be ten plagues before Israel was released. So at a certain point in their confrontation, when Pharaoh's resistance was weakening, as it naturally was going to do, God stepped in, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did so intentionally so that Pharaoh would continue to battle. And you read this in Exodus 7. Then Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his hand. But... I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Notice he says, I will harden his heart to multiply the signs and wonders. In other words, hardening Pharaoh's heart ensures the conflict continues so that the plagues pile up higher so that we get to the tenth one because we aren't stopping one plague short of ten. Now during the first six confrontations that Moses has with Pharaoh, Scripture reports that Pharaoh's heart hardens itself, or it's hardened with no actor named. And that's natural. That's the Pharaoh we know. That's the guy who's in charge of Egypt and doesn't want to see his economy crushed by the loss of all of that free labor. And so he resists the will of God through his own stubbornness, through his own obstinate, disobedient will. But then there comes that certain point where he just can't deal with it any longer. 
And after the sixth plague of boils, the text changes in a very notable way. Exodus 9.12, we're told that after that sixth plague, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Sure enough, the Lord steps in to harden Pharaoh's heart against Moses, just as he told Moses, I'm going to do this. And without the Lord's intervention, Pharaoh would have given up. We'd be talking about the six plagues. We wouldn't have the Passover. The pictures and the purpose and all that God was doing there wouldn't have been made complete. And not even a man as stubborn and defiant as Pharaoh could withstand the wrath of God that long. But friends, there were four more plagues coming, and quitting wasn't an option. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he ensured that continuation, just as he said he would do. Once again, you know, Paul's point is difficult and disconcerting, but it is undeniable. God dispenses his mercy on whom he chooses, and now the corollary, God also displays his wrath against those he chooses. No one could deny that Pharaoh deserved God's judgment, right? We're not sitting here trying to excuse his sin. He was an unquestionable sinner. He was so opposed to God, friends, he endured God's wrath for six plagues on his own. So you know his judgment is well-deserved. We're not saying that God acted in a way that wasn't in keeping with justice. What we're saying is God didn't wait to find out if Pharaoh was sinful before he selected him to receive his wrath, nor did the Lord ever give Pharaoh an opportunity to repent. He never asked him to turn his knee and bow. He never asked him to do anything except let his people go. Scripture says clearly, Pharaoh was raised up for the very purpose of being an opposition to God and one who would oppose God. And even when Pharaoh was ready to relent and submit to God's authority, at least in the request of letting Israel go, God hardened his heart so the battle would continue, just as he said he was going to do before the battle started. God didn't make Pharaoh a sinner. Pharaoh was born that way, but he chose to put Pharaoh's sin to work rather than to rescue him from it. And that's God's sovereign right, Paul says in verse 18. God extends mercy to those he chooses, softening their hearts, bringing them into glory. And likewise, God hardens whom he chooses, confirming their opposition and ensuring their just condemnation. And therefore, among Abraham's descendants, there are those who receive God's mercy, Isaac, and there will be those who don't, Ishmael. As difficult as this concept may be for us to accept, friends, the Bible testifies that God is no less holy, no less just, no less loving, because he acts in this way. Paul says as much back in verse 14, you have to do this in your own way of appreciating the scripture, of reconciling to it, you have to find a way to accept two simultaneous truths that sit on the same page in front of you. You have to accept the truth of verse 14, and you have to accept the truth of verse 18 because they work together in Scripture. Everyone is born a sinner. Everyone is justly due God's judgment. It is evidence of God's goodness and love in the very fact that He extends mercy to anyone. Nevertheless, many Christians over the centuries and still today have stopped at this point in Paul's argument and they don't go any further. They just cannot accept the God that Paul is describing. They believe that Paul's depiction of God here is at odds with the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The God of John 3.16 doesn't sound like a God who only extends his mercy to some while hardening others. This God sounds cruel. This God sounds capricious, some would say. And furthermore, if it's true that God's mercy doesn't depend on our will or on our works, but only on his choice, then it would mean that God could just grant salvation to everyone. If God has the power to grant salvation to everyone, as Paul seems to suggest, well, then wouldn't the God of John 3.16 just do that? Wouldn't he wish to do that? Wouldn't that be what a loving God would do? And Paul knew you'd ask that question. And that's why he answers that one next. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? 
Paul expected you to respond to his teaching by saying, well, why doesn't God just save everyone then? Why condemn anyone? But interestingly, when you hear someone pose this question in the course of a discussion like this, if you've ever had the opportunity for whatever reason to be in a discussion over this topic, and perhaps someone throws this question at you, you know, well, if what you're telling me is true about God and what His power is and what His control is over salvation, well, then wouldn't He just save everybody? Isn't that the right thing to do? When they ask that question, friends, they're usually not interested in the answer. Because the question's actually not intended to elicit a response. It's actually intended as a critique against the doctrine of election. Because in itself, that question, why doesn't he save everyone? That question is actually ridiculing election. This is the line of thought that goes along with that question. Well, since we know God is loving, and since a loving God would certainly want to save everyone if he could, and yet we know not everyone is being saved, well, therefore, God must not be in control of who receives his mercy, and therefore the doctrine of election just cannot be true. In other words, unless and until Paul gives us an explanation for why God doesn't save everyone, we're not going to accept Paul's teaching. Notice Paul's initial response to this subtle critique. He calls us out for our arrogance and unbelief in the face of God's revealed word. As Paul would say, who are we to doubt God's word? Don't you know that the words Paul just wrote and you and I just read are the inspired revelation of the Creator God? He didn't have to reveal this to us, and yet in His mercy and His kindness, He has graciously given us access to this truth, and yet we dare to stand in judgment of Him and refuse to accept what He has given us here unless God first satisfy our doubts and our critiques about it. If you have that stance before God concerning the truth of what's in his word, you might expect him to respond to you the way he did Job. Job 38.3, God speaking, he says, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if if you have some understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or... Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and a thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Obviously, God puts Job in his place. He reminds the man that mankind has no place to question God in anything he does because you know nothing by comparison. How dare any of us answer back to our Creator, our God and Savior, the Maker of all things, as if we should know better how He should extend His mercy to those He created. And don't be self-deceived, friends, because that's what we're doing when we question why God doesn't save everyone as a critique for the prospect that he isn't inclined to do so. It's hardly shocking that the likes of us should demand that God give opportunity to everyone to receive his mercy because that suits our interests, doesn't it? Of course we want him to give everyone a chance for mercy because we don't want to be left out. And so we make it not just a desire, but a requirement if he is to prove himself loving to us. It just reveals your biased thinking and your pride when you make that an ultimatum. You're demanding that God prove himself to be loving according to your definition of the word before you're willing to accept his word on its face. Using the analogy of pottery, Paul rebukes us for this hubris and he says, Who are you, O man? And that phrase, O man, could be translated mere man. Who are you, mere man? To question God. We have as much worth and importance in comparison to God as a lump of clay has to a potter. You're dirt. We're dirt. It's no coincidence that Adam's name means dirt because that's where he came from. And as such, we exist to be molded. 
Our purpose is to be molded by a creator. And Clay's only purpose is to be shaped into something greater by a power who has some useful purpose in mind for that outcome. A potter has a purpose in mind when he begins making something out of clay. He may have, as Paul says, honorable uses in mind. And an honorable pot here would refer to pottery intended for dining on a special occasion, something like fine china, you might imagine. The potter forms the pottery and he intends that that pot, when it's done, is going to be used to serve something nice to a guest. It's his basis for the work. It's his intention for the outcome. And friends, that potter's decision predetermines the course of that pottery's life, so to speak. And then conversely, Paul says, what about the one that's used for common use? You could say dishonorable use. It's a jar for refuse. Uh, In literal terms, it was the toilet. Once again, you need a pot for that, as the saying goes. I'll let you fill in all of the detail. And the potter sets forth to create something out of clay for that purpose. And here's the point, friends. For obvious reasons, you would never take a pot created for a toilet and convert it later to use at the dining table, right? The potter's original desire sets in stone or in clay where that pottery is going to be used forevermore. And there's no switching between them. There's no transformation between them. And likewise, you and I have no right to question God's choice for who will receive his mercy any more than the clay could question the potter. It's actually preposterous to think that the pot could question the potter, and it's just as preposterous for us to question God's choice. So should God choose to use Pharaoh's life in one way and Moses' life in another way, that's his prerogative. And you and I have no place to judge him for that decision. Both men were lumps of clay in their maker's hands, and God knew what was best for each, and he did as he wished for each so that each would reflect glory upon him, just in very different ways. Moreover, the Lord's not going to explain himself to our doubting hearts, because that's not how doubts are erased. That's what we think erases our doubt. That's not actually what erases your doubt. Just as Abraham told the rich man in Hades in the story from Luke chapter 16, if you will not accept the word of God as it is written, then you will not be persuaded by the truth, even if someone should rise from the dead in front of you. Your doubts, my doubts on such things, will only be satisfied if we first accept the word of God as it is for what it says, and then in time... Trust the Lord to reconcile your heart to this truth so that you may accept it. And there are more than a few Christians, maybe in this room, who will tell you a testimony of their willingness to accept the sovereignty of God in the election of souls for salvation long before they could feel comfortable believing it. But in their acceptance of it, God made clear why it was not only necessary but best, why it demonstrates love more than any other option could. And that's where Paul moves next. He's actually going to give you that answer. As condescending as it is to require it of God, he loves us so much he gives it to us. Paul explains why loving God has chosen to bestow his mercy only on some and not all. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now Paul begins to phrase his explanation, verse 22, as a question. That makes it a little hard again to understand. Yet I think his choice to word 22, verse 22, as a question, I think that's an important detail. I think Paul is subtly mocking our foolishness in our willingness to judge God's actions and motives. So it's as if Paul is saying, okay, so you think you know how to decide if God is just. Okay, well, what would we say about God if I remind you that God is willing to destroy all ungodly mankind in the moment of their birth? I mean, that's what the ungodly justly deserve. He's willing to do that. And yet, what did he actually do? He patiently endures the ungodliness of mankind. God allows even the most ungodly men and women to live long lives, even enjoyable lives. Men like Pharaoh, men like Herod, or the rich man in the story from Luke chapter 16, people you could name today, ungodly, rich, and powerful people who live out their days in splendor. These people are an offense to the holiness of God. Every day they live on earth, they test God's patience. 
They mock God. They persecute His children. They pollute His earth with their evil ways. And yet, God allows them to be born. He allows them to live long lives. They can prosper. They can even grow rich and powerful. That's more mercy and grace than such people ever had reason to expect from God. As Jesus says, that is the standard by which you ought to measure God's goodness. In Matthew 5, 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the very fact that God allows the wicked such mercy during their lives on earth, that's evidence of long-suffering patience and mercy, Paul says. But then Paul says, that's the extent of his mercy for the wicked. Paul calls these wicked people vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, like dishonorable pottery. The Lord has brought these people into a world, given them mercy for a time in their physical lives, but they are on a course to destruction prepared beforehand. Why did God even allow such people to be born in the first place? Paul gives us that answer in verse 23. To make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Notice the verse opens with, and God did so. Meaning, here's your reason for why God allows people who are destined to destruction to be born and to live with us side by side. And that reason was to teach his elect that is, those vessels prepared beforehand to receive His glory, to teach us about the riches of His mercy. What Paul is describing here is the power, no, the necessity of contrast. Of contrast. Even though he was willing to destroy the wicked, or perhaps to prevent them from being born at all, yet, nevertheless, God patiently permitted the wicked to enter into life and to exist on earth, and he does that so that the elect can appreciate the magnitude of what we have received. So that you and I, who have been elected to receive God's mercy, might see the lives of the ungodly and appreciate what we've been saved from. That's the power and the necessity of contrast. If you have never known darkness, friends, you can't possibly appreciate the glory of light. If you've only ever known light, then light is meaningless. Or if you've never known sadness, the concept of joy has no meaning. The same is true for concepts like grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. If no one on earth ever received God's judgment, then how can you appreciate His forgiveness? If there was no one on earth deserving of God's wrath, how could you be thankful for His mercy? If no one was ever rejected by God, then who would praise Him for His love? Remember what the Lord told Moses back in Exodus? He said, I've raised up Pharaoh to have him oppose me so that through him I could display my power in defeating him to all the nations, so I could display something through him. In a nutshell, that's the purpose for all creation, friends. That's the only reason creation exists. God made this creation and everything in it to reflect glory upon himself so that we might know God and glorify him for who he is. And to praise and worship God for He is. If you're going to do that, you have to know Him. Right? You have to know His love to thank Him for that. You have to know His mercy in order to appreciate it. But friends, you also have to know the jeopardy you were saved from, the wrath that comes for those in sin, the judgment that is due those who are without His mercy. There has to be some among us who receive one for those among us to understand the other. And you can test this truth with a simple thought experiment. I want you to go back for a moment to where... The Lord came upon Adam and woman in the garden just after the fall of sin. Put yourself in that moment, and I want you to put yourself in God's position for a second. And as a thought experiment, I want you to consider God's range of options for how he might have responded to the fall of mankind in that moment. What is the full range of options God had? There are only three. First, he could have chosen to save no one. He could have rejected Adam and woman and every son or daughter that came from them through all generations. He could have just justly condemned all humanity to eternity and hell would have been full of everyone. And God would have been just in doing that. Secondly, he could have chosen to save everyone. Not no one, but everyone. He could have justified Adam and woman by faith and then thereafter every single child that came in the line of Adam 
would likewise have received God's mercy at some point in their life, everyone born for all generation would enter into glory and hell would have evermore remained an empty place. And God would have been just in doing that. God could have saved all. That leaves us with only one option. God could have chosen to save some of Adam's descendants. He would elect some from among fallen humanity to receive his mercy. And then from generation to generation, you'd find two kinds of people existing. Those destined for rescue and those destined to receive the judgment they justly deserve. God could save none. God could save all. God could save some. So what criteria do you think God would use in deciding which of those three choices he should make? Knowing that God only does what is right, only what is perfect. Which of those three choices is the right thing to do? Well, what criteria does the Lord use for doing anything that he does according to Scripture? Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Or Psalm 86, 8. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. These are but a few references, and there are many more like it. But the point I hope you can see is God's criteria for every single thing he does is what maximizes his glory. What maximizes his glory. And the choice that gives God the most glory in his creation is the choice to save some. Think about it. If he saved none, well, clearly there'd be no one to praise his name. And in eternity, there'd be nobody to share his glory. That's not maximizing. And if he saved all, then we would never appreciate the magnitude of the gift we received. And you can't fully appreciate things unless you know what it's like without them. You can't appreciate eyesight unless you've known blindness. Imagine a world where everyone had been born automatically destined for grace. Imagine that world for a minute. No one would ever pray for themselves to receive mercy, much less for someone else to be saved. No one would ever live in gratitude for salvation. We wouldn't even know what that means. No one would think about repentance, much less maintaining a holy and righteous witness. Who are we witnessing to? It doesn't matter. What's the point in those things when everyone ultimately receives God's grace regardless? In fact, God himself, I would argue, would have been an afterthought in those circumstances. Who would even talk about him? What difference would it make? It would be like the sun in the sky. It's there every day. What's the difference? God receives far less glory in a world where his grace is taken for granted. And for our sakes, Paul says, the Lord has patiently endured ungodly men and women so that he may teach us, his elect, something about grace. In verse 24, Paul says, God established this plan, look, for the benefit of us, those who are called by God into his grace, both Jew and Gentile. God predestined this plan before the foundations of the earth that we would know him and that we would receive his mercy. And he has allowed some to remain outside his mercy so that we can appreciate what we got. Now today, you and I look upon the lost and the dying world And what we see is us apart from grace. And because of that, we have the appreciation of what it means that the creator of the universe has chosen us, chosen us to be rescued out of that hopelessness. And what's more, your gratitude increases all the more when you come to understand that your present circumstances were assigned to you from before the foundations of the earth, not for any reason of yourself, purely because the Lord chose for you to receive it. If that doesn't bring you to your knees, then there's nothing of the Bible that could, friends. I've heard people say that this doctrine is so unkind, unloving, and cruel. And to them I say, you don't understand. How humbling is this truth? How marvelous, how freeing, how glorious. To understand the doctrine of election is to truly understand God's love. You and I still know sin. We still experience suffering like the world of ungodly do. The difference is we know these things will not be the end of us and we can rejoice knowing we have been prepared for glory. So the key to understanding Israel's past is recognizing that God is in the business of selecting those who would receive his mercy, both among those in Israel, Paul says, and also among the Gentiles. And Paul proves this as we finish now. He proves his point that it's always been this way with God since the beginning, quoting from a couple of Old Testament prophets, Romans 9.25.
And he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who were not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Well, in that first quote from Hosea, he quotes the prophet who told Israel that in a day to come, the Lord's going to shift his mercy away from Israel and toward the Gentiles. That God would begin to call a people who are not his people, his people. Those who previously were not receiving his mercy would now begin to receive his mercy. And obviously he's telling Israel that in a day to come, the Gentile nations are going to get what God had alone given to Israel up until that point. Barring a few exceptions, obviously. But in general, Israel was in, Gentiles were out, in a day to come. Gentiles are in, Israel's out. Nothing demonstrates the truth of God's election more clearly than that. Think about it. The shift from Israel being the one receiving God's promises to the Gentiles suddenly having interest in the same, you can't explain that in normal human terms. History demonstrates that at the Messiah's coming, almost immediately Israel ceased to receive God's mercy in large part. And in the following centuries, very few Jews have embraced Jesus as Messiah. And yet, in the same time, Gentiles have come to Jesus in the billions. That pattern is is inexplicable except as God shifting his choice from one people group to another. For if such things were merely the result of social patterns or human thinking, then you would have actually expected the opposite thing to happen. Because think about it, as a Jewish Messiah coming in fulfillment of Jewish scriptures, that should have held great interest to the Jews. Even if the ones of Jesus' day rejected him, later Jews certainly would have found interest in it. It's tailor-made for Jewish interest. And likewise, Messiah should have virtually no interest for Gentiles. I mean, Gentiles were generally repulsed by Jewish culture and religious practices. Many of them still are today. Few Gentiles understood the concept of Messiah, much less held any interest in embracing one. And yet history records that a dramatic role reversal took place at Jesus' first coming. Within a few decades, the church was largely Gentile, while faith among Jewish people was rapidly dying out. Nothing explains that trend except a shift on God's part to transfer his dispensing of mercy from one people group to the other. I don't know a better example of God's election than that. But notice in verse 26, Paul includes a second statement from Hosea where the prophet says, you know what, that shift away from Israel, that ain't the end of the story. Because from out of their place of rejection, Israel will eventually receive mercy again. And in that same place where they were previously declared to no longer be God's people, God is going to speak again in a future day. And in that future day, he's going to once again declare, Israel is my people. Once again, that statement is not explainable except by the doctrine of election. You can't explain that in human terms. That out of the blue, one day in the distant future, all of a sudden Israel will have awakening and decide they like God again? You cannot explain that in again, out again, back in again pattern in human terms. It's only explainable as God working His sovereign will. Next, Paul quotes from Isaiah 10, that God has always extended His mercy to just a minority of Jacob's descendants. Just as God loved Jacob and hated Esau, so has it gone with everyone in the nation. Some receive His grace, others not. And Isaiah says that ratio has always been unequal. Throughout history, God's elect have been few in relationship to the larger minority he passes over. And Jesus himself says the road is narrow. Paul talks more about the remnant later in later chapters. So for now, it's just enough to understand that Israel's past is a story of the remnant, of a few saved out of a many nation. And then finally, Paul quotes from Isaiah 1 to remind you that God's choice to extend His grace to some in Israel was never based on their merits. Isaiah, speaking as a member of the remnant, says that if it had not been for the Lord's mercy, they'd have been no different than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about that for a minute. This is one of the strongest statements of God's sovereignty in this chapter. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, praising God faithfully in the temple the man that we hold in such high regard for good reason, says he could just as easily have been engaged in the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah. The only reason that he wasn't there was because the Lord stepped in and changed his life by his mercy, making him 
part of the remnant. Leaving him, as he says, a posterity, which it refers to a share in the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. So let me summarize what we've learned as we end tonight. We've learned in chapter 9, concerning God's faithfulness to his promises, that Israel has so far rejected the Messiah because the Lord has elected them not to receive his mercy for a time. And that is not evidence of God being unfaithful to his promises. It's not even new. God has always been selective in this way for who in Israel would receive his promises. Only a minority within Israel and even among the Gentiles are called to receive God's mercy. That's God's plan. It's his way of demonstrating the riches of his mercy to the elect in contrast to those who do not receive it in the world. By leaving some in their sins and rescuing others by his mercy, he can rightly receive the most glory. Next time we meet, we're going to finish chapter 9 as a transition into 10, Israel's present. And in that chapter, we're going to understand what is God's plan for his people during this present time. In other words, if God has redirected his mercy to the Gentiles, as we see now, is that unfair to the generation of Jews who are born and who live during this time? Is God being unfair to these particular Jews who just happen to live during this time, excluding them from the opportunity to be counted? among the remnant of God? And even if Israel is restored in a future day, doesn't this interim period of rejection cast some doubt on the faithfulness of God? We'll answer those next week. Heavenly Lord, Father, you are the one who knows the things that we don't. You have all the wisdom and power, and we have none. You are loving, you are good, you are righteous. You love us, more than we could know and more than we could love you. You loved your world and sent your son to die for its sake. But as scripture testifies, Father, that love is extended according to your will. That while you died for the world, Father, you apply what you did to those you choose. And in a day to come, the world will be yours, righteous and holy, in a kingdom that you set forth, that you made possible that you won the victory for. And by your choice, we will be there, Father, and we will praise you into eternity that you brought us there for no reason except your love for us. But at the same time, Father, we understand that those we see around us in the world today, we know not who is your chosen. We are in no position to judge anyone. For all we know, Father, every man and woman we come into contact with for the next year might be someone you choose to extend your mercy to. And so, Father, let nothing we learn tonight inhibit our desire to spread the truth of your gospel one bit. In fact, Father, give it reason to go stronger. Father, give it reason in our hearts to be even bolder. For we know, Father, you have the power to change every heart. Nothing can stop your will, Father. So why wouldn't we praise you in front of everyone? Why wouldn't we testify in front of everyone? Couldn't you change every heart should you wish to? So, Father, I pray that our knowledge of this doctrine would make us bolder evangelists, more loving witnesses of Christ, better ambassadors for you. And at the same time, Father, that we would uphold the truth of what we know in your word without excuse and without fear. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to hear your truth. And we pray, Father, for more in the future. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.